So let me go on to introduce Dr. Sag, who you've already met today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over his accolades. But he is going to be presenting challenging cases in antiviral, antiretroviral therapy in a panel discussion. And we have several other panelists today joining us. Rafi Landovitz from University of California, Los Angeles. We, I've already mentioned Dr. Sag. We have Roger Bedimo, and uh, we have Matt Feinstein. I can't see who's all the way down at the end. Kim, Kim Morkowski has joined us. We were supposed to have Monica Gandhi, but I don't know where Monica went. So um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to forge on without Monica for the moment. So um, Mike, I'm turning the podium over to you. Great, thank you. Uh, it's, it's good to be back. Paul, you look like you're feeling better today. Good, that's great to see. Um, so these are, for those of you who've seen this before, it's, it's really case-based. I go, am going to um, highlight some things that you're going to be seeing a lot more in depth uh, in some of the questions. I'll go through those kind of quickly, but this is kind of meant to pick up as a kind of potpourri uh, topics about antiretroviral therapy and some of the complications. So I've served as a cons consultant for these two companies. And we're going to go over antiretroviral therapy for initiation and change and issues of weight gain and pregnancy and or on abacavir regimens. Um, we're going to talk about managing the cardiovascular risk as a little tease for Dr. Feinstein's uh, talk later this afternoon. Talk about STIs and particularly look at um, at uh, uh, Doxy, which is a prep for Dr. Wolkowski's talk, and then uh, MPOX. We did we talked about that a little bit and talk about COVID. Well, we'll tap into Dr. Volberding to see what this all feels like. Although I think most of us eh, probably had it, and it's no fun. Uh, so let's talk about our initial regimen. I'm going to turn to the panel in just a second. So we got a 48-year-old guy who presents newly diagnosed. His viral load's 280,000. CD4 counts 65, so let's, I'm going to say you have this information when he shows up, not like our usual where we, we just sort of uh, assume we don't have the information. The other labs are normal, we get a wild type virus, normal renal function, he's okay to start therapy if you in, ask, want him to, and of course you do. So what regimen would you use? I'll let you look these over and uh, kind of pick it up. Uh, viral loads over 200,000, CD4 counts less than 100. Um, I'll have to hum some tunes. Okay, um, so which regimen would you use? I don't know if we have music, but maybe we will for the next one. We do, we do. We just got to wait for it to queue up. Um, XT. Ah. Oh, anybody know this? Welcome to my little town. Anybody know this? <laughs> Nobody. Apple TV, Dr. Landovitz. Apple TV. Schmigadoon season Sh one. It's Schmigadoon number one, yes, it's good. All right, let's see what we got here. Here all week, two shows nightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the majority of the audience goes with Vic uh, Taff FTC uh, panel. Uh, Dr. Bedimo, uh, what were you thinking here? Yes, Use I, a microphone. <clears throat> uh, following the wisdom of the group, 
this is somebody who has no uh, significant uh, comorbidities and uh, uh, we don't have baseline uh, labs and so we want to make sure that we have them on a regimen that is likely to work for most. So um, I agree with uh, uh, TAF FTC Bictegravir. Uh, 3TC Dolutegravir, uh, a la Gemini study, has also been uh, shown to work. This is somebody whose initial viremia was less than 500,000, and that's good. Now, as we said earlier, you know, Bacavir 3TC Dolutegravir, we still have a concern for people with uh, possibility of uh, high cardiovascular disease risk, um, so we don't know. The main problem with uh, TAF FTC of Ategavir-Cobisys that include uh, whether uh, <clears throat> somebody is going to have other drugs that the pharmacoenhancers might be a problem with. Uh, also, uh, uh, and and uh, Darunavir, plus Dolutegravir, not something that we have studied a lot, but since we've seen it work in uh, the DEF2 study in uh, experienced people in uh, Africa, I think it just might uh, be uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, workable as well. So I think that all these options are uh, on the table with, uh, with pros and cons that we can discuss more. I think the, the main thing to see is, you know, what is the, the cost uh, if you start what is in green here, you know, if uh, um, uh, very little uh, missing. Um, so. Okay. So we've had Dr. Gandhi has just joined us. She's from UCSF. And I'm going to turn right to you um, just to start us off because there's two things on here I'd like you to comment about just based on prior conversations. I know that um, you in general um, uh, are like uh, on initial regimens to maybe lean towards Darunavir. So maybe you can advocate for that or... Uh, Actually, um, our position on Darunavir at Ward 86 is more for patients where we're concerned about adherence. And so here I see that this patient has uh, advanced HIV. But where this comes from is there were four studies last year published, the Vicen study, the Nadia study, the Donning study, and the 2SD study either in abstract form or publications that looked at if you have NRTI resistance, what regimen should you use? Dolotegavir-based regimens versus boosted PIs. And there were different boosted PIs. Donning was lupinavir-ritonavir, <coughs> and the others were essentially darunavir-ritonavir versus dolotegavir. And even though dolotegavir retained its place as should be second-line therapy, first-line and second-line therapy worldwide, even in the face of NRTI resistance, dolotegavir is going to work. If you failed with dolotegavir, especially in the Nadia study, you were likely to fail with dolotegavir-based resistance. Nine participants in the Nadia study failed with dolotegavir-based resistance compared to darunavir-ritonavir where no one had PI resistance. Yeah, yeah. So what that really led us to think is that if a patient you know, really can't take their medications every day, it's four or five times a week, in the setting of documented difficulties with adherence, we favor darunavir ritonavir over dolotegavir. Right, so a lot of your work recently is focused on that more difficult population. So the case I presented was 
kind of an advanced HIV with a CD4 kind of six, 65 and a viral load of 200 and some odd thousand. And so if you're worried about adherence, then you might lean away from a strain transfer inhibitor. Last option there on the, just because we've got you here and I want to take advantage of that. Let's say you have somebody, let's make it a little bit easier, somebody who's got a viral load of, let's say, 40,000 and a CD4 count of 230, and you're real worried about them. They're, let's say they're homeless and they're, they're, you aren't 100% sure about their adherence in the long run. What about the, we normally use um, injectable cabotegravir with opivirine um, after someone has achieved viral load suppression, but you've done a pretty innovative study, and you'd be the first to say, not ready for prime time or exploratory, of looking at direct to inject, meaning you just start them right away. So maybe you can tell us about that briefly. Yeah, um, so briefly, you know, we were all talking about this before long actings came out. Can we use this for adherence challenge patients? Antipsychotics, contraceptives, really long acting had a benefit if you had a hard time taking a daily pill. But Flare Atlas Atlas 2M, the registrational clinical trials that led to the approval of long acting CAB and Ropivirine, you have to be suppressed on oral therapy for at least 20 weeks before you go to injectables. We have a patient population that has a high rate of homelessness, 34%, award 86, and we decided to just try it. Use long-acting cabotegravir and ropivirine, even in this patient, someone who cannot take oral ART, just has documented cannot, even if they have viremia, and uh, presented our demonstration project at Croy. It's, it's about to be published, but really showing that even in patients who with viremia, it was a small study, so you, like you said, we need bigger studies. But even in patients with viremia, there was a very high rate of virologic suppression because they couldn't take the oral ART. It's almost unethical to say, give you oral ART if they've documented they can't. So about essentially a 98.5% suppression rate in that small group of patients who are viremic. Right, so we're first to say this is off-label, so we have to be do that for CME purposes, but I think it is, um, I think a tribute to you and your team for thinking it out of the box on um, what to do in these very specific outlier cases where perhaps you might have tried a Darunavir regimen up front and they failed not because the drug just didn't work or there's resistance, but because they didn't take it. And after they fail and they come back, then you might use this option even though their viral load is de detectable. Right. Okay, so I think we've been clear there. Let's, let's move on. There's the antiretroviral guidelines of ISUSA that came out in December, and the HHS guidelines are there. So let's kind of take, uh, pick up from Dr. Benson's conversation uh, at the first of the thing, and let's go back to the future with Doc Brown and Marty McFly, and uh, let's look at the regimens. There's our same guy on the right-hand side, so you've got a lot of information. But now you've got new drugs. Um, the Islatravir Duravirine is an option, and Islatravir Linacapavir, which really hasn't been studied, it might be every four months, every six months, I mean. BNABs you heard about with Linacapavir, early data. Implantable, implantable, we didn't talk about that, but you could do it like we do for progesterone, uh, uh, for, anti for contraceptive uh, treatment with an implantable that you can take out. What, what, what is most attractive to you understanding we don't have data? Just go ahead and vote. 
Yeah, there we go. Oh, we're still in Schmigadoon. This is corn pudding. And if you've got some extra, I sure would like a taste. Yeah, that's probably one of, one of the better songs in the thing. Okay, let's see what we got. Ooh, the implantable seems to win, even though it doesn't even exist, and, but it's attractive, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think it's attractive for two reasons. One, it's every 12 months, and even those little, it'd be a surgical procedure, just kind of a plant, implant one or two stitches and you're done. People in OB, uh, or sorry, GYN have been doing this for oh, quite a while, right? Maybe a couple decades. Um, but what's also cool about it is if there's an adverse reaction, you just pull it out and it'll clear, as opposed to something you've shot into somebody's gluteus uh, that you can't really exactly remove. So, uh, what do you, well, Connie, why don't you chime in here of what, what was uh, resonating with you out of these choices? Yeah. Uh, any thoughts about uh, just using sub-Q? It, it doesn't exist yet for his Latrevere, but it might. Yeah, I think sub-Q options um, on microphone. Yeah. So. Yeah, try, try Rafi's there. Yeah. So I think the, the sub-Q options, uh, I think, are also potentially attractive. Yeah. Um, people don't have much trouble with sub-Q with diabetes and a host of other diseases that they take sub-Q medications for. So that's another attractive option. But as we're all talking about it, I think we're really into the long-term injectable uh, materials. I think IV infusions don't appeal that much to me. So as I said, the broadly neutralizing antibody approach is kind of iffy in my mind. Right. Um, you'd have to set that up through an infusion center and all the complications thereof likely to be much more expensive. So I like the implantable and sub-Q approaches. And, and I can't even begin to think what that cost is going to be, but um, yeah, boy howdy. Monica. I just wanted to mention lenacapavir and cabotegravir together. And it's not on your list, but the reason that this keeps on coming up in conversation is lenacapavir at the moment, and I know this is three years, this is, this is a great time, implantable and all that, but at the moment, lenacapavir doesn't have a long-acting pairing. And as Dr. Benson talked about in the Calibrate study, we're not gonna get this approved for naive patients. That wasn't even powered for naive patients. So this question of lenacapavir, what's the closest thing at this point to be paired with that's as long acting as you can get. It's actually cabotegravir every two months, lenacapavir is every six months, and there's so much NNRTI resistance, or at least low level around the world, that this cabotegravir wilpivirine combination has not been approved by the WHO for treatment. And so I think people are increasingly, because lenacapavir is now available as of December 12, 2022, getting it. And we have 18 patients in, in, to be in California on lenacapavir and cabotegravir um, and, and putting it together. Right. So I, I just had a patient uh, this past, come to the microphone, or there's over there. So, Repeat the question. 
the, do they have recovering resistance? So there are 14 patients at UCSD that they've shared their data on, and then um, uh, uh, and then uh, we have seven. Um, in our case, it was either that they had yes, NNRTI resistance. Um, and for example, I just put a patient on lenacapivir, cabotegravir, who's had HIV for 35 years, cannot take pills anymore, just cannot, yeah. and had so much NNRTI resistance. Right. I just had a guy literally this week in clinic on Monday who was a, uh, is a transplant recipient, but unfortunately the donor kidney was a HIV to HIV transplant. The virus that became dominant was a donor-derived donor variant that was resistant to strand transfer integrase inhibitors, and we couldn't use any kind of boosting agent, and it was also resistant to non-nukes, so we used lenacapavir as a, as a base and then went with uh, one of the more active uh, non-nukes, and I think it's gonna work, but uh, I was tempted to pull out some uh, TAF because I didn't know what to use there, and even though he's got a renal transplant, you know, sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do. Kim. Yeah, so I've got a couple of things. I think it's wonderful to have choices. To the microphone. I think it's closer. wonderful to have choices, but I think that trying to put everybody in a bucket is not the right yeah. thing to think about. And especially when you're thinking about worldwide and you're thinking of the incidence of hepatitis B, yeah. um, and you have to be cognizant of that. Right. Um, in terms of your choices and if people are at risk, um, especially what I see with the hepatitis B, and we've had a couple of recent cases of um, uh, sexual transmission, um, that people are not vaccinated, they're not immune. So I think the point is that you have choices like anything else, and you have to sit down and offer your patient the choices. And sometimes on the first visit, you're not, you don't really know, right? You, you're, you're trying to develop this relationship with them, and you don't really know. You're trying to figure it out together, and then you can change over time as things evolve, and things evolve with comorbidities as patients are living longer and things. I'm really excited about having choices, truthfully, yeah. and that you're able to offer. This is what I have to offer you. What do you think um, yeah. as time goes I, on? I think that I'm really glad you said that, because I think we, we don't want to get into a just one-size-fits-all. We have to... Uh, match, mix and match, and I think that's certainly what Monica and her team have done out there. There are two quick questions I'll take real fast, is that, that do you know if uh, in the setting where people can't take oral medicines, would the injectable cavitegravir ropivirine be covered by insurance? And generally, yes, but it's hard. It's hard. Uh, so it's easier to get it on public insurance than private right now, which yeah. is this irony. Hmm. Right. And then what about resistance to cabotegravir? It's basically the same as dolutegravir, so way to think about it. So um, let's move on to simplifying regimens. Mike, so, just before we do, yeah, can I interrupt? Ahead, I, so if anyone is thinking about doing what Monica has sort of told us about in this interesting combination of cabotegravir and lenacapavir, Monica, how are you getting the cabotegravir? Because you can't get it as monotherapy unless you're using it for PrEP. So are you getting cabinuva and tossing the real piverine? Or Correct. How it <laughs> so we're, we're getting the cabotegravir. You didn't I hear that. OK, so I'm sorry. <laughs> so this actually came, we were just, um, I was just at a meeting in India. And I will say that in India, you know, that because Vive signed on to the medicines patent pool, they're making cabotegravir for the world. But then what do you put that cabotegravir with at the moment? But you're right, in this country, the, um, 
the prep formulation, 600 milligrams prep formulation every two months, I can't get it to give it with lenacapivir. So you get the cabotegravir ropivirine 600, 900, and you toss the ropivirine. So it is a waste. Okay. So our next uh, is a case is a continuation of the first case, same person, uh, but he, he got started on dalutegravir TAF FTC, and after four months has gone to undetectable, had a nice bounce in the CD4 count. And the question is, would you be Herbert Walker Bush and not going to debt, not going to change, wouldn't be prudent, or might you change to uh, one of these other choices? Please vote. Mufasa. <laughs> so I used to call this Sestiva Truvada instead of Akuna Matata, but um, Sestiva Truvada, I don't know why they ever, why they didn't do that, but Lion King, I'm, I don't like because it beat out Ragtime for the best musical that year. So most people wouldn't change. Some people would go to injectable. What, what say ye all? It depends. Rafi. <laughs> uh, I, again, I, coming back to what Kim said before, I, I think you have to have a conversation with the patient. You know, um, if, if they're doing fine on TAF, FTC, Dolutegravir, there's certainly nothing wrong with that regimen. You haven't said there's a toxicity, correct? So um, if it ain't broke, don't fix it is certainly a reasonable approach. They are undetectable. So cabotegravir, rilpivirine would be an option. I think you said that they're hep B negative. We know that now, right? That's correct. They're hepatitis B they're, immune. Okay, great. Yeah, I said you, that. You didn't say that before, which would have made us less excited um, both about uh, the second and third choices there. Um, you know, dolutegravir uh, plus 3TC, you know, we certainly know works very well for initial treatment, so it probably will work okay yep. for switch. Should work well. Um, so any or all of those, I think, are okay, depending on what the patient wants to do, what's, what it's going to cost them, what their mm -hmm. insurance is going to allow. Um, if this two pills versus yeah, one so thing Yeah, so you're is, going, I mean, you could have started on a fixed dose of Bictegravir, but this whatever reason started with dolutegravir with two pills so going down to one pill would be less expensive fewer co-pays um others monica you you look uncomfortable because down there we have to talk <laughs> we have to talk about side effects actually for a moment in the sense that um dolutegravir uh, and bictegravir first-line therapy for a reason really highly potent high genetic barriers to resistance so now we almost have the luxury to talk about adverse effects, side effects, metabolic profile, weight gain, and really think about that. So there was a study at Croy um, 2023 that showed, from Amsterdam that showed that if you do take away that TAF, you do get better, you get improvement in cholesterol, and you get improvement in lean trunk mass. And then Dr. Badimo presented the characterized study. I know that was going to TDF, not um, you know TAF, taking away the TAF altogether. But there is this element of, um, of, of TAF and, and its impact on metabolic effects and weight. And so that number two kind of looks uh, somewhat nice in terms of a long-term effects on weight and cholesterol. Right. It depends yeah. on, you know, go ahead, Roger. And, and then to complete that, I agree, uh, is that 
switching to the third arm, the lithography 3TC has not been shown to impact the weight. It's the same weight, but improvement in metabolic parameters, lipid and, 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 and glucose. So, so it's possible that you may uh, have benefits by, by right. the so let me move on. And so Mike, just one you, sorry. Good setup. Go ahead. One other point about the cabotegravir-lopivirine regimen. People need to remember that the injectable, this this particular injectable regimen, right? Um, it carries with it a small but real rate of virologic failure despite on-time injections, and that failure is often accompanied by dual-class resistance to both agents. So. People are very excited about the benefits of this injectable regimen and life-changing ability to not have to take pills every day and be reminded of a diagnosis that's so stigmatized still in our communities, but it does come with a price. This will not be the only long-acting injectable regimen we ever have. It's the AZT of long-acting injectable <laughs> regimens, but um, it, it, I, I think people really just, that needs to be part of the counseling and that this isn't a slam dunk well, so switch. quantify it's what percent it's like one percent that's a two two 1.4 percent in the hundred <laughs> <laughs> to be right in between you guys so I hear 1.3 <laughs> because the 152 week data was presented at id week by Chloe orkin so it's 1.4 percent of yeah. us where so it, when it happens it's it's could be bad but it's like me getting my knee replacement, right? That's prosthetic joint infection, 1.4%, yeah. But the, the other problem is I've had three cases of very serious um, pancreatitis associated with ropivirine. Um, and so very serious. And huh. so um, I, I'm very nervous about that. And I also, there is, I've seen a lot of recent injection fatigue. We talk about fill fatigue, but there's also injection fatigue. People that have had pain for several weeks after their injections, and then they have two weeks free, and then they, they're set up for another two weeks. So you have to really seriously think about that as well. It's not just the liberation from a pill. It does have consequences. So it goes back to what you said earlier. It's good to have these choices, and right. part of the choices is informing the patient as you're in discuss with them. There's a 1.4% injection fatigue. We have a lot of people coming back for bicillin every other month, and so that gets fatiguing as well, which you'll talk about a little later. Yes, we will. Okay. How is picking up right on Dr. Bedimo's point? We're going to turn to you, Dr. Bedimo. This is a woman who started a BICTAF FTC, um, similar to our last case. Nice response, great response. Uh, but currently her weight uh, has increased from 145 to 171. And we'll move on and let you look these over. But one is, again, don't change anything uh, or change to something that's listed here. Let's go ahead and vote and see what kind of music we get this time. So, all right, 
most people, it's interesting, switch her to dolutegravir, TDF, so getting off the, so Dr. Bedimo, help, help us decipher what might be, she's real worried about this. I mean, you could, I guess you could start semiglutide or something, but short of that. No, I, I think that the number one thing before we get to this point that we had to do with a person like that is that we owe her candor before we start antiretroviral regimen so that we don't face this problem. That the candor is to tell them we don't know whether they're going to gain weight. We know that they're more likely to if they're women or non-whites, but beyond that, we have very little and, uh, understanding so that there's no surprise. Now that this has happened, there's a frantic uh, search for what to do, whether that weight gain is reversible. Thanks to the characterized cohort, we think it just might be, uh, but this is extrapolation because uh, that was dolutegravir plus FTC uh, TAF, but this is because FTC TAF, but we think that's a possibility. So uh, according to that study, if you switch that patient to <clears throat> a regimen that, that removes the, the, the TAF and maintains the, the, the dolutegravir, there's possibility that it, they, lose, they lose some weight. If you switch them to dolutegravir, plus uh, 3TC, uh, it's possible that we will not lose weight. If you switch them to TDF-FTC, Doravirin, we're waiting for an ACTG study that will tell us if that mm. will be the case. And um, uh, I hope it enrolls a little faster than it is now. And because we really need to know, because this is the one option where you're removing two possible um, uh, offenders, i.e. integrase inhibitors and TAF. It's possible that removing both would be uh, resulting in weight uh, loss. Now, if you look at other studies from SALSA to others, I think you have to be cautious that it's possible that the trajectory of the weight will be different uh, based on how long they've been on the offending agents. Yeah. Uh, it may be possible to reverse if they haven't been there for more than a year or so. Oh, so the bottom line is we don't know. Right? I mean, you did a nice it job. It was a long way of saying I don't know. <laughs> but I, but I think what we can say for sure <laughs> is that going from big tegravir to dalutegravir isn't going to make a lot of difference. So that's maybe not a great choice. TDF, yeah, that might be helpful, but so far it hasn't really been shown to have a dramatic effect. And we'll see in the new study, you know, getting to. Uh, we know what is associated with more steep inclines and in weight gain, that's strand transfer integrase inhibitors and TAF, but you see it with basically every regimen. So I think it's prudent as we initiate therapy just to kind of give a heads up, right, as we prescribe things, whatever we decide with the patient, and look out for this as we go. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of where we are. I think we'll move on, but... Um, uh, Let's move on to pregnancy. We have some experts in the audience um, who's welcome to come to the microphone. So this is pretty straightforward. A woman um, newly diagnosed uh, in, when she went in for prenatal uh, evaluation at six weeks, had a viral load that was kind of low, CD4 count high. And uh, we had a B5701 just because, and it was negative, and a wild type virus. 
it's her first pregnancy and she wants to start therapy. So what is the best, today's world, best initial therapy? And I'll give you a heads up, there are some wrong answers here. So there's a, you know like in the board, board questions where you get the ejector seat if you pick one? I'm just putting pressure on you now as you go, so go ahead and vote. Yeah. Eh. <laughs> okay, let's see what we got here. Oh, so a pretty well-informed audience, but maybe missing a few points, and no one went for the ejector seat question, yay. So Kobe Sistat would be a no-no. Yes. There's no data for it, and it's not a good idea. Um, commentary, who wants to take this one? Monica. You know, um I, I think what was really helpful is that fundamentally what happened with the DeSamo cohort, um, which was the, the study in Botswana that showed a possible observational cohort increased risk of neural tube defects with dolotegravir, more observations that so completely went away that, that this is, you know, always should be first line and it literally, um, you know, derailed uh, rollout of dolotegravir for women for a full year. So that was, was a difficult um, thing to see. but. Actually, everything works well in pregnancy except for Kobe because of decreased levels. Kobe just doesn't have, doesn't boost the either alvitegravir or the um, or the PI enough. Uh, the, the levels truly go down the third trimester. But the question had always been about TAF, and now we have studies, you know, from the impact cohort really looking at a Fabrin's TF versus FTC versus dolotegravir TAF FTC. That dolotegravir TAF FTC actually looked. Um, better in, in terms of some yeah. uh, pre-weight, pre-term delivery, and other outcomes for the for the baby. So at this point, TAF is as good as it gets for a pregnancy. And then BIC, we don't actually have a lot of data on, but there's no theoretical reason to think it, so that I it would do. The way it's emerging that until more data, and they, they're coming, right, more data. It's, it's more that I think, I think the world has come to realize is that unless there is a, I understand what happened with thalidomide and it was a terrible thing, but unless um, we enroll more pregnant women in, in clinical trials, we should be really justifying exclusion rather than inclusion, but there's no theoretical reason why BIC you know, would have any effect more yeah. than dolotegravir, and we have to just make those assumptions and people really need to like to stay on what they were on, so yeah. everything is essentially fair game except for Kobe. That is, to me, the, the key point. So I think there's two take-home points, one of which is addressed, I think, in one of the pretest questions, that the optimal regimen based on existing data is our second choice here, which is TAF-FTC-Dolutegravir, based on the most recent cohort and randomized trial data. TDF-3TC-Dolutegravir, that's fine. It's maybe not quite as good. And BIC-TAF-FTC, as you said, the data aren't 100% there, but when this is the second point, when you have someone who uh, becomes pregnant while on BIC-TAF-FTC, most people would say just stay the course. Um, the challenge has always been with efavirenz, with dolutegravir, if you remember back three years ago where that was a no-no, is because of the neural tube closure issues, which seems to be 
a folate-derived um, mechanism and through different binding, and there's been some nice papers on how that goes, but typically as soon as you find someone who's pregnant, it's, it's a good idea to start folate, although at six weeks you've missed the window for the neural tube, but that's okay. Um, most kids do really well, and the data are now pretty robust, so I think we hit that. And these are the, the guidelines from a different Dr. Gandhi that I stole this slide from. The lesser Gandhi. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. He's Dr. Good. Gandhi the lesser, is that what you call him? And, uh, no, he's good. So no. this is, kind of summarizes uh, what we have. I think we just more or less talked about all that. Okay, and this is the other study. I think we'll, in the interest of time, these will be in your handouts So when you get the slides. So let's go with this problem. Persistently, to, oh, please, Dr. Cohn. Um, one other issue is um, has to do with remdesivir and, and those students haven't had that up there. That's, that's an area where people are on it, get their jurors, um, have, have better or that feels something. So we end up, um, yeah, uh, So we actually talk with the patients and inform them and, and really make sure that we understand what what kind of, um, what their feelings are about things, one pill versus two, how hard it is to take pills, all that kind of things. And um, we often continue that regimen even though we know that the levels may drop in the third trimester and we end up getting more frequent bilos, uh, yeah. make sure they get through it. Uh, so that's a whole class of non-nukes that we, we do uh, treat, but we're, we do it with, with caution. Yeah. Um, and this person was naive, right. so. Um, and, and of course, if we do the the, the and the TAF, is a two pill version. Right. So they need to understand that. So, so the one good thing say in one the, pill is it. So. The one good thing in the HP10084, some women got pregnant, and the capitivirin levels with the long acting didn't seem to decrease in pregnancy. So I know you're talking about ropivirine oral, but looks looks pretty good so far with with IM. So round of applause for Dr. Cohn, who has been here at Northwestern, right, uh, for a while, and uh, really focuses on women's health and has made huge contributions to literature. So thank you. Um, great. So persistently detectable viremia. This is a 55-year-old guy who comes in, he was diagnosed a while ago, had pretty advanced disease then, but now has got nice responses, remained in the persistently detectable range of over 50, but less than 100 every time he comes in. He's been a, <laughs> treated with more or less everything, kind of. But now he's on dalutegravir, boosted darunavir, and 3TC, and we don't have his resistance data uh, because he's new to us, came from somewhere else, uh, uh, New Mexico, let's say. And uh, should you change therapy now? Uh, is this antiretroviral therapy failure, in essence. So uh, let's go ahead and vote. Here, and uh, in honor of this song, yeah. So we went from Broadway to TV with cheers. So the majority wouldn't uh, change, wouldn't be prudent. Kim, what would you do? So I, oh, you I, need a microphone. 
No, I wouldn't. Um, You'd stay the course. I would Change stay the wouldn't course be and repeat the viral load. One of the things um, that comes up a lot is um, just talking to the patient and saying, oh, yeah, I was out of town. I missed my meds or whatever. So I, I wouldn't just on one one um, You'd stay reading. The course. I'd stay the course and right. just repeat one in four to six weeks. What do we know about um, dolutegravir with boosted darunavir as a regimen? Monica, you want to comment on that? Well, the Duala study um, was the study in in um, you know in this in this setting that looked at patients with NRTI resistance or another reason to put darunavir. It was a phase two study, but darunavir with boosted boosted darunavir with dolutegravir, and it looked good. And then um, earlier, um, we presented the DEFT study yeah. from um, from where that was presented at Croy 2023 that. That an NRTI resistance darunavir boosted with dolutegravir may even be superior to either dolutegravir or darunavir boosted with two NRTIs. Though the WHO is not going to change the guidelines to do that, right. you know. So I mean, it's better to save darunavir for the future. So um, I would say that we know enough about it that it's a good regimen. I'm not sure why he's on three Right. So I don't know what would happen to Gerald's clinics at our clinic when dolutegravir got released. Um, a lot of folks were just combining dolutegravir uh, with boosted darunavir only and just being real excited about that. And I was kind of nervous because way back when raltegravir got released, we had paired that with darunavir and it didn't work so well. In fact, there was like 40% failure and there was resistance. And I'm like, whoa, 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 tap the brakes. But it turned out to be just fine. Um, so, you know, you why you got to do the studies. Um, I think I'm going to move on in the interest of time to get through all this. And bottom line, I wanted to show on this slide, I don't have time to go through it, but if you start at the top with the turquoise cells that are infected in the body producing virus, the key thing is that all antiretroviral therapy does is block the infection of new cells. And the, the virally infected cells at the top die roughly at about a day, and they get replaced. When you give antiretroviral therapy, they're not replaced and the viral load comes down. So the question really at the essence of this is, is that regimen blocking 100% of new infections? And the answer is generally yes, especially in somebody who's had a very high viral load at baseline, like his was 900,000. There's a lot more of these upper right handles, latently infected CD4 lymphocytes that spit out virus periodically that you're really detecting. And so if you, you can add to the regimen, you can give mega heart, whatever you want to do, it's not going to change anything biologically. So I wouldn't get shook about that, um, especially since we know this is what he's done for the last decade or plus. Um, this is, I'll skip this. Um, so yeah. this is to Dr. Workowski. Yeah, How do I manage a patient? who has frequent UTIs, nobody sees a patient like this, maybe <laughs> except for you, um, and doing well on their BICTAF FTC. And about every six to 12 weeks, they come in with some variation of syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, or multiple of those together. And so what do you do at this point? Um, counsel about condoms, um, uh, offer amoxicillin, uh, uh, doxy or suffixing. Go ahead and vote.
out of father got a lot farther by working a lot harder by being a self-starter by giving me the answer <laughs> mic drop okay dr workowski you're going to talk about this later so we don't have to belabor it what is your answer so my answer is it depends um, <laughs> and that's how i i would approach this um, and we'll, we'll get into some of the the data does he fit the rubric in terms of the three studies that have been shown that have shown a reduction? Yes. So there's A1 evidence for three studies now that have shown that there's a reduction in the use of doxycycline 200 milligrams 24 to 72 hours um, after sex, um, that it reduces STIs. Not 100%, um, but it, yes, there's a dramatic reduction. So this so, was, yeah, so this is just a preview, right? Yes, this is just kind of a preview. And the question is, when you have to make that choice, he would fit, check your boxes, and that's somebody that you can think about that. But do you have to think about what the other implications are? I've got a case that I'm going to go over with you um, of somebody that I took care of that had 30 gonorrhea infections in a year. Um, is that and a lot? <laughs> it was for me. Is it? Okay. Even me. That's one every And so the question is, how do I manage that person? And this was, this was something we can talk about. So right. I, I think the point is that there, it's not the panacea, is what I think you're getting at. And it is part of something in your behavioral toolbox that you can discuss with the patient. But we'll talk about the pros and cons. Right, so what Dr. Feinstein is going to talk about this afternoon with statins is important, brand new stuff from the pretrial. What Dr. Wachowski is going to talk to you about is this, uh, which is also new. There's nuance, but it's pretty interesting uh, uh, of where it came from. So another Wachowski question, would you give him 4C meningococcal B vaccine? Yes, no, not sure. Take it. Chicago. No, Chicago, the original. Okay, let's see what we got here. So most would. Uh, Kim, real quick, what are your thoughts on this? So the issue is this all came about very quickly in terms of a retrospective study that was done in New Zealand uh, a number of years ago when there's an outbreak of meninge B. Um, and basically it brought down the incidence of meninge B, but it also showed there was a 30% reduction in gonococcal incidence. Since then, there's been six other retrospective or observational studies that have been done that have shown an association. I'll show you a poster that we presented at ECMID um, uh, last, a couple weeks ago um, to show you all the data. But the bottom line is right now there's an ongoing RCT that's going to answer this question. Um, so there appears to be some benefit. We don't know um, exactly all the details, but there appears to be from these seven studies that there is a benefit. And we'll answer it in this RCT that's being done um, throughout the country and in Thailand to try to answer this question. So the take home to me is um, not serious species, both meningitis and 
gonorrhea have obviously the same family, and so maybe uh, immunity would be cross, uh, across species. But the thing I never could understand is why doesn't infection with gonorrhea itself be an immunostimulant enough to prevent an infection? We it's don't know. not, but then a vaccine is being tested that might work. We don't it, know. Yeah, it's the bottom you. line. We so the bottom line okay. is we don't know. There's 95% homology between um, the um, outer membrane proteins of meninge group B. And if you guys remember that it was very hard to develop a meningococcal B vaccine, um, the menactra we had kind of for a while with the four serotypes of um, Neisseria meningitidis. But group B took a while to develop and because it was very challenging. And right now, the ACIP has a um, permissive recommendation for vaccination for um, meninge B. So it's interesting. It's provocative. We don't quite know. We've submitted a paper to JID with all kind of the background evidence that's kind of under review right now to explain the kind of the whole situation and where we are. But it's very interesting. And truthfully, nothing else is working. Um, we have an FDA-approved vaccine. We don't know anything about the duration of immunity. And as you know, you can get gonorrhea multiple times, and we have no sterilizing immunity. Okay. So you, you see Dr. Feinstein's up here, and he's going to take this question. Um, is a cardiologist who is an antiretroviral therapy expert at this point at Northwestern. So the 62-year-old guy started on therapy years ago, a wild-type virus returns to your care after four years, being treated elsewhere. He's been through multiple regimens. He's now on fixed-dose combination of Bacavir 3TC. Dolutegravir has well, responded well. His HDL is 52. His LDA is 100, uh, but he is a smoker, and uh, he has no cardiac history, and his family history, let's just say, is negative. He's on a Torvastatin and low-dose aspirin for reasons that I guess you could get into if you wanted to. And here he is. Besides asking him to quit smoking, would you continue his current therapy, change him to something else or some other kind of option? Let's go ahead and vote. made up all my mistakes. That's a great play. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen, you've been way too out of touch. Okay, let's see what we got here. Uh, so most people would change. Some would continue, 25%. What are you going to recommend from a cardiologist perspective? Uh, so I think it's, and is this working, Bob? Mm. Uh, all right, cool. Um, yeah. To start off, I have to say I'm, you know, the way I work with my infectious disease and primary care colleagues, Susan being one of them, we were talking about, you know, several individuals we share care for. Um, it's collaborative. I, I don't actually prescribe antiretrovirals for anyone, and I can potentially make recommendations based on what the data are, but the reality is you have to have an alternative. So, okay, so after the disclaimer, you've got to make Yeah, so of course, <laughs> right? I, I mean, but, but that said, Mike, I, if there is a reasonable alter alternative for the person, I mean, what I'd usually say is, yeah, there's some cardiovascular risk here, certainly some unaddressed risk. LDL of 100 on a Torvastatin is okay. This individual can probably get his LDL substantially lower and see a linear drop in his cardiovascular risk. Um, he also smokes, which is probably, you know, getting him to quit smoking is probably going to make a bigger impact on his cardiovascular risk ding, than ding, anything. Ding, ding, ding. 
yes. In, including, including changing his antiretrovirals. Mm -hmm. and, and so, yes, I think, do you probably get a marginal drop in a marginal or maybe more than marginal drop in his cardiovascular risk from switching to an alternative from a bacavir? Probably so. But you also, you know, taking into account the other factors, I think addressing the other risk factors is probably going to have a larger absolute impact on his Okay, so let me, let me make uh, a point with a question. So the studies have been kind of all over the map. Uh, the cohorts sort of can show up to 1.9 relative risk increase in myocardial infarction for people who are otherwise older and at risk for cardiovascular disease what they stay on a Bacavir versus being on something else. Smoking is clearly more important. I mean, a lot more important. But one of the proposed mechanisms by which a Bacavir can lead to increased myocardial infarction is through platelet uh, aggregation of some way. But he's on an aspirin. That's why I did that. This isn't a real case. I made this up. But I put him on an aspirin to see what you think about the effect of aspirin through the arachidonic acid cyclooxygenase pathway to thromboxane A2. <laughs> so without, without going through that pathway in too much detail, um, I, you like showing off your cardiology. No, I was, always. It's, yeah, I, it's actually what I did in no, uh, I, I, undergrad. Um, so it's interesting, you know, the data on what the optimal antiplatelet therapy will be, both for primary prevention, in this case this is someone who hasn't actually had an MI, so that's considered primary prevention, right? Preventing cardiovascular disease before it's clinically apparent, um, versus secondary prevention. That's, I mean, that's certainly a debate. But also, I mean, there are some smaller, largely semi-mechanistic studies suggesting aspirin may be a little bit less effective in people with HIV than people without HIV. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit and suggesting that alternatives like clopidogrel um, may tend to be a little bit more effective. But again, that's, I mean, that's completely uncharted territory in terms of, I mean, aspirin for primary prevention is under extensive debate in the general population. And then when you add the complexities of potentially being a little bit less effective at inhibiting platelet aggregation in people with HIV, it's just really unknown. So I think the common sense uh, conclusion from all this is Stopping smoking is critical mm. if you want to do the most impact on prevention. Get his LDL lower. There's too. not a great reason to stay on a Bacavir, but Monica, real quick. Yeah, I mean, just really quick. TDF, you know, has his and TAF have its own issues, and renal insufficiency is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And I find those observational studies extremely confounded. And so I really do like the mechanistic studies, and I don't give people who are having an active MI a Bacavir. But I'm really not. I'm really, really into a Bacavir. I think it's a, it's, it's, it's right. a very minor reason to think that we have cardiovascular disease. And we'll also hear from you about stat use um, in people of a certain age and older that is the new data. And so, sorry, Mike, the one, the, I, I'd like to say too, I agree with Monica completely on that, and that's why I guess the direct question of would you stop a Bacavir in older patients, no, I don't think it's a blanket comment ever. It's really, you know, is there a particularly high risk here? Is there a clearly better alternative? So, so I'm going to stay with you for this one just real quick, because this is a question on the pretest as well that you're going to get beat over the head with. but. The bottom line is 41-year-old guy diagnosed 11 years ago, um, well-treated now on dolutegravir, 3TC fixed dose, undetectable virus, E4610, everything else is kind of normal, LDLs 155. If you do the cardiovascular risk estimate, you put it in the numbers, it comes out to an estimate of 2.5% over the next 
10 years, which is generally considered pretty low. So with all that craziness and this 41-year-old guy, would you start a statin out? Yes, no, not sure, let's vote. Schmigadoon. So I, I really like the show. If you're a big fan of Broadway musicals, it's great because you get to see what Cinco Paul did to incorporate style of music from old musicals into new songs. So, all right. So <laughs> I already see a change from the pretest, uh, and probably by the end of the day, you'll be at 100% yes. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not going to go into discussion for time, but I'm just prepping everybody to look to you for that answer, but the answer yes is correct based on the reprieve study, all things being considered with a little this. So you get to see what that is later today. There it is. I'll let you go through. All right. So last two questions quickly are about COVID and HIV. So a 65 year old guy, low grade fever, cough, headache, and sore throat for two days. Rapid test is positive for COVID influenza test at the clinic is negative. Uh, less than 20 copies is a smoker. Uh, Dalutegravir, lamivudine, rosuvastatin, a few other drugs, including uh, rivaroxaban, uh, et cetera, and oxygen saturations, about 94 to 95% of marriage, one to two days into illness. Would you initiate which of these drugs in the current era, like today? Uh, let's go ahead and vote. Or a picture show. Okay, got it. So first, it sounded like Hedwig in the Angry Inch. No, no, no. This is a moment, everyone. Mike didn't know one of the show tunes. <laughs> okay. It's because I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know. Okay, here we go. So, what do you think about this? Um, anybody? Well, at this, um, uh, <clears throat> we have somebody with, we call it mild to moderate COVID, and our goals of care thus far, preventing him from being hospitalized or dying from it. Um, it all depends on the age of the person, much, I mean, this is the largest maybe risk factor here. I don't recall uh, everything about that, that, that person, and that's maybe uh, a little more. <laughs> There you go. So, 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 so as, and you have a smoker, yeah, and, and so yeah. all these things to tell they are 65 or more, probably the, the biggest risk factor for progression is age, um, HIV or not. Uh, so, it's important to consider treatment in this person. Now, the caveats here are that the most efficacious uh, 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 drug for that endpoint, preventing hospitalization death, is uh, nematravir, retronavir and the concerns are mostly in drug-drug interactions. So we have this person on, on uh, Rivaroxaban and Vardenafil, two yeah. 
possibilities of, uh, of interaction are here. Now, we have possibilities of considering interruption of uh, uh, these drugs, if uh, uh, safe to do so. I imagine Vardenafil is uh, erectile dysfunction, not pulmonary hypertension. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. yeah, so just in the interest of time, that was the point of the question, was that mm -hmm. there are some of these drugs, uh, carbamazepam in particular, mm -hmm. um, to some degree rivaroxaban, uh, statin to a degree you could just hold that. Yeah. But the drug-drug interactions are really numerous because of the CYP3A4 inhibition with ritonavir that everybody in this room knows well. Go to the Liverpool drug interaction COVID thing and, yeah. and it just flies you through it. But I don't know that we can get away with uh, we can get away with uh, Paxlovid here. What I do in a patient like this, all the other ones, uh, the monoclonals don't yeah. work against the Omicron. Yeah. And I think in this case, since I'm worried about this guy, um, he's got a little bit of hypoxemia already. It's day two. If you're going to give an antiviral, you need to give it right now. He's a smoker. I, I would probably go for outpatient remdesivir, which works incredibly well. And it's, it's logistically tough. But yeah, Connie. Uh, that's what I was going to say is that. Um, is keep talking. Keep going. Or use rabies. Um, although not directly compared in clinical trials, the remdesivir trial with three days of outpatient infusion had um, dramatic reductions in hospitalization yeah. and, and uh, mortality and disease severity. And even with inpatient COVID therapy with remdesivir, at that, at the, with the stage of disease he has, it virtually stops disease right. progression. So I had, so. I had several points. Uh, we're running, we've run out of time, so I'm, I'll just make them quickly. But the drug interactions are probably prohibitive for Paxlovid here. Mondopiravir eh, could work, but not nearly as well as remdesivir. Remdesivir has been slotted because of its intravenous requirement to late, like seven day, 10 day, when they get admitted, that's too late for an antiviral. I mean, it works a little bit, it's amazing. It does anything, it works great when given early, like all antivirals, we've learned, treat early, treat hard. We learned that in HIV, we need to do it here and it will save lives. So uh, none of the monoclonals work against the new variants. Uh, this now that we're uh, XBB 1.16, which is, um, a pretty horrible virus in terms of transmission, as Dr. Volberning found out. And I'm going to skip this last question in the interest of time. It's just a, it's a classic tough case that you Mike. might reach for linacapavir or maybe some mm -hmm. of the other drugs like FOSS. Mike, I just think the other thing to bring up is that the logistics of doing that um, are just very challenging now with all our staffing shortages. Sure. And even um, it's just really hard. So I would agree with that in premise. I'm just saying the, the trying to get it done in a quick way is very challenging. So what I would suggest, I agree, what we've done at our place, although you can't maybe implement it, but we did a lot of monoclonal antibody and we used the infusion center. So we just turned them over to remdesivir, not saying it's easy and we don't abuse it, but sliding them into the infusion center in a special isolated area where they're not infecting the patients with malignancies who are getting infusions. Uh, that has worked for us, but we don't abuse it. Um, so finally, I'll just finish up here. Um, antiretroviral therapy should be initiated in general with a strand transfer, trans, transfer integrase inhibitor. 
um, as close to the time of the diagnosis. Weight gain is associated with, especially with NSTs and TAF. Dietegravir and TAF are drugs of choice in a regimen in pregnant women uh, and give folate. Simplification is doable, but it depends on the case. You're going to hear more about doxycycline for the right type of patient and frequent STIs. And watch for drug-drug interactions with SARS-CoV-2. And that wraps us up. I want to thank the panel for a wonderful discussion. Everybody sort of chimed in with their expertise. It was great. Made my job